This message is brought to you by Moira Pentecostal Church. We hope that it will encourage, challenge, and inspire you in your walk with God. The eighth chapter of the Gospel of Luke. We'll read a few verses together. Well known portion of Scripture. Going to read from verse 40. So it was when Jesus returned that the multitude welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And behold, there came a man named Jairus. He was a ruler of the synagogue. They fell down at Jesus' feet and begged him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter about 12 years of age, and she was dying. Then we know that as they went, this little woman with the issue of blood, she interrupted the proceedings, got her healing. But while that was going on, verse 49, while he was still speaking, someone came from the ruler of the synagogue's house saying to him, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher. But when Jesus heard it, he answered him saying, do not be afraid, only believe and she will be made well. When he came into the house, he permitted no one to go in except Peter, James, and John, and the father and mother of the child. Now all wept and mourned for her, but he said, Do not weep. She is not dead, but sleeping. And they ridiculed him, knowing that she was dead. But he put them all outside, took her by the hand, saying, Little girl, arise. And then her spirit returned, and she arose immediately. And he commanded that she be given something to eat. And her parents were astonished, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. Consider for a moment this morning the miracles of Jesus. He made the lame to walk, the blind to see, the dumb to speak, cleansed the lepers, cast out devils, supernaturally supernaturally fed 5,000 people, even raise the dead. If you were asked, what was the purpose of those miracles? Why did Jesus do those? I think that you could answer that in several different ways. First of all, you could say quite rightly that it was his compassion in wanting to alleviate the pain and the hurt of humanity. When Jesus saw people hurting His heart of compassion was moved, the Bible said, toward them. Secondly, it would show his credentials as the Messiah, the one who was to come. And you remember, of course, how that whenever John the Baptist sent that delegation to Jesus saying, are you he that should come or do we look for another? In other words, are you really the Messiah? What was Jesus' answer to that? Go tell John that the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf are able to hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have the gospel preached unto them. So that's where his, those were his credentials as the Messiah. And then thirdly, it would also show forth the glory of God. And two of those miracles... Uh, the healing of the blind man 
and also the raising of Lazarus from the dead. In both of those, it's clearly stated that this was to show forth the glory of God. So there are a number of reasons why Jesus did these miracles. And then fourthly, we could also say because of the hundreds of miracles that Jesus did, there are only a few that are actually recorded for us. So we could also say that it was to teach us some spiritual application. Not just for the betterment of those who received the miracle, which it obviously was, or for to show his Messiahship or to show the glory of God, but so that we might learn something from them. And so that's what I want to share this morning. And I want us to look at particularly four people in the New Testament who were raised from the dead. Three of them Jesus raised from the dead, and one we see in the book of Acts. And we want to see what spiritual application that we can learn from these. Of course, physical death and physical resurrection was a perfect illustration of spiritual death and spiritual resurrection. It says something to us along those lines also. Ephesians 2.1 And you has he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. Colossians 2.13 and you being dead in your sins, the uncircumcision of your flesh, has he made alive together with him, having forgiven all your trespasses. And then Luke 15, 32, where the, uh, the father of the prodigal said to the elder brother, It was fitting that we should make merry and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive again, was lost and is found. And so there's application in all of those statements. Uh, first one we want to look at here, and we read it together, was the raising of Jairus' daughter. Jairus and his wife, no doubt, were uh, dedicated and devoted parents to this one and only beautiful young 12-year-old daughter. I'm sure that she was the absolute apple of their eye. No question about it. And at some point... Uh, this little girl took sick. All children take sick at some point in her lives. That seems to be the normal course. But this particular sickness uh, got very, very serious. And I'm sure that each day that she was sick, and I'm sure they were well-to-do parents, he was a ruler of the synagogue, no doubt they tried everything in their power to alleviate this sickness. They would go to anyone they would know that could uh, offer some kind of a cure, but nothing was working. And it got to the stage where they realized our daughter is dying. She's at the point of death. And I think that's when desperation began to come in. So much so, in fact, that this man was going to have to step out of his comfort zone. His comfort zone was being ruler of the synagogue. No question about it. They had all heard about Jesus, the miracle worker. And the thought went through his mind, if I could get to Jesus, perhaps maybe he would come and perform a miracle on my daughter. But he had to set that beside the feeling, I'm a ruler of the synagogue, and he's not the most popular person in Israel at the moment, especially with a religious establishment, which he was at the very heart of. But nonetheless, his, his desperation drove him 
to saying within his heart, if I can get to Jesus, I believe that he could give her the miracle that she needs. Jesus had just been coming back. I'm sure the boat had just landed. He had been at the country of the Gadarenes. He had set that demon-possessed man free. He had just come back. The crowds were swelling and gathering around him. So he had to go, and this was a public thing he had to do. This wasn't like Nicodemus coming at night. He had to go publicly in front of all those people. And the Bible tells us, we read it together, when he got there, he fell down at Jesus' feet. He did not care anymore of what anybody thought. He needed a miracle. And he fell at Jesus' feet, and he begged Jesus, would you come and heal my daughter? And of course, Jesus, with him, went on their way to do that, and then the interruption of the little woman. But they got to the house, and there was much weeping and wailing. Uh, That messenger said, don't bother the master any further. It's too late. Your daughter's dead. It's time for a funeral. Uh, But as soon as Jesus heard that, he must have saw the anguish and the pain in the eyes of that man, Jairus. And Jesus looked at him and says, Don't be afraid. Only believe. Your daughter will be made well. Now what comfort and strength and hope that must have given Jairus. His faith, whenever that man said, Your daughter is dead, must have hit the floor at that point. But when Jesus said what he said, his faith rose again. And he was trusting and he was believing. And we saw how Jesus went into the the house and everybody was weeping and wailing, including all the professional weeper and wailers in those days that if you had enough money, you paid somebody to come and professionally make a noise for you. And what did he do? He ushered them all out. Only Peter, James and John and the mum and dad. And then how? He sat down beside that little girl and he took her by the hand. And Mark said he spoke to her in Aramaic, Talithai Kumai, little girl, I say unto you, arise. And suddenly, what a moment that must have been. That little girl rose up. What a moment that must have been in that room. And wouldn't you love to have been there to see that with your own eyes? And it was fantastic. What a great miracle. And then he said, Give her something to eat. She probably hadn't eaten for days because of her illness. Maybe even weeks she hadn't eaten a bite. And no doubt her parents had lost their appetite. If your young child was lying and her life was ebbing away, you would not feel the eating. Sure you wouldn't. That would be the last thing you'd be thinking about. You'd lose your appetite. Uh, there had been, <laughs> it would have been a very sad meal around a table at that time. But suddenly Jesus says, give her something to eat. In other words, even though it was obviously for her strength that she had lost and she needed to regain, but apart from that, can you imagine when Jesus said, give her something to eat? In other words, get cooking, lay the table, let's have a meal. Can you imagine the rejoicing there must have been around that dinner table at that day, at that time? Can you imagine the smiling faces and the hugs and the laughter? Uh, It must have been absolutely fantastic to be around that table. And the friendship and the fellowship and and people crowding in and, and looking and watching. It must have been wonderful. See, in eastern countries, eating was not just swallowing food. 
Many times that's all we do when we eat, isn't it? I hold my hands up too. We just eat because we're hungry. We don't really think much about it. Sometimes we don't even talk either. Sure we don't. We just eat. We shovel it in, don't we? But in Eastern countries, it was a time of fellowship, of friendship. It was something different. It wasn't just eating for the sake of eating. It was a family time. It was a time of fellowship. And we are raised up by God for fellowship. For fellowship. We have to fellowship. The Bible says that Christ, after his resurrection, whenever those disciples come in from that boat expedition of fishing and they had nothing, what happened? Jesus was there waiting on them on the seashore and he cooked them a meal. Somebody says that was the first barbecue ever. He cooked them a meal on the seashore. And it was more than just to feed their hunger. It was saying, boys, we want a fellowship with you. I'm here to fellowship. Let's sit down. Let's talk. Let's fellowship. We are made for fellowship. The early church had agape meals. They would gather together, love feasts. They would gather together, and each of them would bring food. Americans call it a potluck supper. You never know what you're going to get. depends what somebody brings. The trouble was, of course, they had come very complacent about it, and Paul had to write to the Corinthians because... They were coming and those who had much brought much and those who had little had little and there there was no sharing going on. There should have been. It was a time of sharing. And also they would have a, a time in that meal to have Holy Communion. And Paul really had to talk to them because they were messing the whole thing up. This was for fellowship with one another and fellowship with the Lord. God has made us for fellowship. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good, the psalmist said. He brought me into his banqueting house and his banner over me is love. Jesus spoke one time to his disciples about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. And boy, they had a hard time getting their head around that. And he had to explain to them, he says, look, the words that I speak unto you, they're spirit and life. The flesh profits nothing. I'm talking to you about something spiritual, man, he says. Eating my flesh, drinking my blood is fellowshipping with me. How do we fellowship with the Lord? We fellowship through his word. Psalm 119, 97. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. This is the bread of life for us. If you're not reading this word, if you're not digesting this word, you are spiritually starving yourself. Do you hear me? You're spiritually starving your inner man. This is food for your spirit. This is to build you up spiritually on the inside. And so we fellowship with the Lord whenever we take his word and we begin to partake of it in Psalm 1 the very first Psalm blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly nor stands in the path of sinners nor sits in the seat of the scornful but his delight is in the law of the Lord and in his law he meditates day and night 
He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he does shall prosper. We fellowship with the Lord through the reading and the meditation of his word. There's something about the Word of God that builds you up spiritually. You say, well, David, I read it, but I don't always understand it. Well, I eat my food, but I don't always understand how it all comes together. I just eat it because I know I've got to eat it. If I don't eat it, I'll die. So don't make that as an excuse. Start to read the Word of God, and if you don't understand it, the Holy Spirit's the author of the Word of God. Ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to you what this Word means. And listen, I've said before, there's a thousand aids out there. The bookshops are full of them to help you understand the Word of God so that you can take bite size and digest it and get the strength of it and build yourself up spiritually. We fellowship through the Word. We fellowship through prayer and through praise. Ephesians 5.19, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. And you can do that by yourself, in your car, in your room, walking along the road, wherever you are, you can do that, making melody in your heart unto the Lord. And you can make up a song to Him if you so desire. Or you can quote psalms or sing psalms to Him or put on a praise disc or whatever it is that you use and sing along and praise the Lord. Prayer and praise helps us to fellowship with Him. And then through meditating on Him, Psalm 104.34, someone says, My meditation of Him shall be sweet. My meditation of Him. Not just his word, but him. Thinking about him and his goodness and his mercy and his grace and his compassion. Psalm 19, 14. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. What is the meditation of your heart? What do you think about say, David, there's that many things running through my mind. At times, I don't know what I'm thinking about. Such is life. It's busy, isn't it? Your mind gets crowded with stuff. And so you have to filter a lot of that out and block out some times during the day where you can meditate on Him and think about Him. And of course, not forgetting fellowshipping with the Lord's people. You see, a relationship with Christ, it's not just vertical, it's horizontal. He's the head, we're the body, and you can't separate the two. Hebrews 10.25, Forsake not the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is. Church is not perfect. You are not perfect. I'm not perfect. But it's God-ordained. With all of its faults and all of its weakness and all of its feelings, it's got great strengths. And I am saddened and shocked sometimes how many Christians totally miss the point of church. 
There's no thought of going to church with, what can I offer today? What can I give today? How will my prayers, my praise, my listening to the Word of God, how will that impact that church service? We become consumers. We come to church like this. What's in it for me? Now there's got to be something in it for you. Of course there is. But if that's all there is, then you're just a consumer. You're not a partaker. You're not a contributor. But if you come with the attitude, what can I contribute to this? How will I add my praise, my prayers, even before you come? How will I listen to the Word of God? What will that do? It'll do wonders for the whole service. And so our fellowshipping with Him involves fellowshipping with one another. And of course, whenever we do that, uh, then there's responsibility and there's accountability that goes with that. There's people who just want to be free and easy and just float around and flit around and all the rest of it and never get hooked in anywhere and just, you know, I'm a free spirit. Well, what's your contribution to the kingdom of God? Zero. Complete zero. Because you're not being accountable or responsible and church is a place to be that. This is why God has raised it up. And so, Jairus' daughter raised up by God for fellowship. And then there's a story in Luke chapter 7, just the previous chapter of the widow of Nain. And how that in Nain there was this widow, we don't know when and how she became a widow, whether her husband had an accident or whether he took sick and died. But she had been a widow for a while. And you have to understand that being a widow, particularly in Bible days, was very, very tough. No government assistance. No social services. There was some provision in the law of Moses. But sometimes that was hit and miss. That depended if everybody obeyed the law of Moses. And so to become a widow was very, very, very difficult indeed. But this woman had one thing going for her. She had a son. And her son obviously was at an age where he could work, he could provide. And so at least she had that going for her. But then he died. What an awful predicament to be in. And as soon as he died, particularly Jewish people, and especially in those days, they had to be buried almost immediately that day or at the most the next day. And so the word would go out through the village of Nain that the widow's son has died and they would prepare him for burial, they would wash him, and then they would put him on, well, it says here, if you read that, it says a coffin, but it was a beer, which was like a stretcher, and they would put him on like this stretcher, put a sheet over him, and four men would, would hoist him up, and then they would walk out to the edge of the village to the, where the cemetery was, and the widow would lead the way. And there would, it says there was a great crowd. So she was well-known, she was well-liked, seemed to be the whole village would come out, and so they were on their way to bury this only son. And then suddenly down that dusty road came another crowd and Jesus was leading that procession. And it says there was a great crowd. Had many of his disciples were there. Lots of people had followed him. They wanted to see more miracles. And whenever they got to the cortege, Jesus stopped the procession. 
Now, what would have been expected in those days was for passers-by to join the procession and go a morning with them. But Jesus stopped the procession. That was a big thing to do. And the woman was crying. She was weeping. Her heart was broken. She was devastated. And Jesus went over to her. Now, the Bible doesn't say this, but if you allow me a little bit of imagination, I can imagine this wee widow woman looking down with the big tears just dripping from her eyes. And I can imagine Jesus going over, lifting up her chin and looking at her and saying, do not weep. Only Jesus would have dared to say to that wee woman, do not weep. In any other circumstance, that would have been a cruel, callous thing to say to a broken-hearted widow. Grief is part of her humanity, isn't it? And just to simply tell somebody, stop your crying, wouldn't be very nice, would it? That would be rude. But when Jesus said, do not weep, it was different than anybody else saying it. Do not weep, he said. Then he went over, the Bible says, and he touched the beer. Young man, I say unto you, arise. And immediately, the young man sat up and he began to speak. <laughs> what a moment that was also. Can you imagine those two great crowds watching this happening right before their very eyes? This young man suddenly begins to sit up. And what's the first thing he did was he began to speak. Raised up to testify. Raised up to speak. Raised up to speak up. Suddenly, this young man spoke up. Doesn't tell us what he had to say, but you can be sure whatever it was he said was important. And every ear was listening. A dead man speaking. That's something, isn't it? Raised up and began to speak. Have you a testimony today? Is there something about Christ that you can say today that you can testify about? This testified to a new life. You and I have got a new life in Christ. That's something to talk about, isn't it? We can speak up about that. Surely we can talk about that. We can talk about everything under the sun. But what about the most important thing? That Christ has redeemed us that we're saved, that we're washed in the blood, that we're going to heaven, glory to God, that we're a child of God. That's plenty to talk about, isn't it? We can testify of that. Some of you can testify to the Lord's healing touch in your life. Some of you can testify to the provision of the Lord. When you had that great need and you didn't know what you were going to do, but God intervened and met that need, you can testify about that. Some of you can testify how God delivered you from something. Psalm has said in Psalm 45 and 1, My tongue is the pen 
of a ready writer. Revelation 12 11, they overcame him, Satan. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives unto the death. Psalm 35 28, my tongue shall speak of your righteousness and your praise all the day long. Of course, what you do and what you are is as big as testimony as what you speak. Because actions very often speak louder than words. But nevertheless, we're not called to be silent witnesses. Thank God that our lives are changed. And it's wonderful if people see that change in our lives. No question about it. If you get saved and say you're in a workplace or within your family setting and you change, everybody sees the change. If they don't see any change, then I question that you're saved. But if you are, there is change in your very lifestyle. And people see that. It's the first thing they see. So we're not called to be a sun witness, though. We're called to share and to say something. If we're only a sun witness then people may conclude that you're just a nice person. That you're a decent sort. That you're amiable and that you're friendly. And you have a nice personality. I worked with a man for many, many years who was exactly like that. Lovely, nice, quiet, nicely spoken, wouldn't harm a fly. Everybody thought he was a lovely fellow. And it was only after years when I was leaving that place that he actually told me I'm a believer too. What? After all these years, you never actually said that even to me? I never knew. I thought he was just a nice person. Lots of nice unbelievers, lovely personalities. We're not called to be a silent witness. We're saved we're blood-bought, we're blood-washed, we're spirit-filled, we're witnesses to the marvelous grace of God. And we can say that. Of course, there's different ways that you can testify. Senator Selgrip the other week gave it. But this man, he became a Christian. He was a barber. He became a believer. But he was a silent witness. And then he felt convicted. And he said, Lord, I really need to testify. And so he made up his mind on Monday morning, first thing, the first customer to come in, he would testify. He would share the Lord. And sure enough, the first customer would come in and he draped him with a cloth and he lathered him up. And he's trying to pluck up the courage. He says, excuse me, sir, just give me a moment. And he ended his side room and he got out of his Bible and he says, Lord, please help me. What am I going to say to this man? I promised you I would witness to the first customer. And so he comes out to the man in the chair, Bible in one hand, the big cutthroat razor in the other, and he said, excuse me, sir, are you ready to die? <laughs> Not a great way to witness. <laughs> Definitely gets his attention. <laughs> Like a one-eyed discus thrower, he wasn't very good, but he sure kept everybody's attention. <laughs> I, 
I shared this with you before, but this is so good. I've got to share it with you again when it comes to witnessing. And uh, this is a story that Chuck Swindle told. And uh, he talked about a pastor. He was on a flight going somewhere, and he says, The pastor, dressed in a comfortable pair of old blue jeans, boarded a plane to return home. He settled into the last unoccupied seat next to a well-dressed businessman with a Wall Street journal tucked under his arm. The minister, a little embarrassed over his casual attire, decided to look straight ahead and for sure stay out of any in-depth conversation. But the plan didn't work. The man greeted him. So to be polite, the pastor asked about the man's work. Here's what happened. I'm in the figure salon business. We can change a woman's self-concept by changing her body. It's really a very profound, powerful thing. His pride spoke between the lines. You look my age, I said. Have you been at this long? I just graduated from the University of Michigan School of Business Administration. They've given me so much responsibility already, and I feel very honored. In fact, I hope to eventually manage the western part of the operation. So you're a national organization, I asked, becoming impressed, impressed despite myself. Oh yes, we are the fastest growing company of our kind in the nation. It's really good to be part of an organization like that, don't you think? I nodded approvingly and thought, impressive, proud of his work and accomplishments. Why can't Christians be proud like that? Why are we so often apologetic about our faith in our church? Looking at my clothing, he asked the inevitable question, and what do you do? It's interesting that we have similar, human, similar business interests, I said. You're in the body-changing business. I am in the personality-changing business. We apply basic theocratic principles to accomplish indigenous personality modification. <laughs> he was hooked, but I knew he'd never admit it. Pride is very powerful. He said, you know, I've heard about that. He replied hesitantly. But do you have an office here in the city? Oh, we have many offices. We have offices up and down the state. In fact, we're national. We have at least one office in every state of the union, including Alaska and Hawaii. He had this puzzled look on his face. He was searching his mind to identify this huge company. He must have read about or heard about, perhaps, in the Wall Street Journal. As a matter of fact, we have gone international. And management has a plan to put at least one office in every country of the world by the end of this business era. I paused. Do you have that in your business? I asked. Well, no, not yet, he answered. But you mentioned management. How do they make it work? It's a family concern. There's a father and there's a son and they run everything. It must take a lot of capital, he asked skeptically. You mean money, I asked. Yes, I suppose so. No one knows just how much it takes. But we never worry because there's never a shortage. The boss always seems to have enough. He's a very creative guy. All the money is, well, it's just there. In fact, those of us in the organization have a saying about our boss. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Oh, he's into ranching too, said my captive friend. <laughs> no, it's just a saying we indicate to indicate his wealth. My friend sat back in his seat, musing over our conversation. What about with you, he asked. The employees. There's something to see, I said. They have a spirit that pervades the organization. It works like this. The father and son love each other so much that their love filters down through the organizations so that we all find ourselves loving one another too. 
I know this sounds old-fashioned in a world like yours, like ours, but I know people in the organization who are willing to die for me. Do you have that in your business? I was almost shouting now. People were starting to shift noticeably in their seats. <laughs> Not yet, he said, quickly changing strategies. But then he asked, do you have good benefits? Oh, they're substantial. I countered with a gleam. I have this complete life assurance, fire assurance, all the basics. You might not believe this, but it's true. I have holdings in a mansion that's being built for me right now in my, in my retirement. Do you have that in your business? <laughs> not yet, he answered wistfully. The light was dawning. You know one thing bothers me about all that you're saying. I've read journals, and if your business is all that you say, why haven't I heard about it before now? That's a good question, I said. After all, we have a 2,000-year-old tradition. Wait a minute, he said. You're right, I interrupted. I'm talking about the church. I knew it, he said. You know, he says, I'm Jewish. Want to sign up, I asked. <laughs> Isn't that brilliant? <laughs> Raised up to testify. In John 11, Mary and Martha sent for Jesus because their brother Lazarus is dying. Jesus loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Did you ever consider that until the resurrection of Jesus, that his siblings, his brothers and sisters, and he had brothers and sisters, that they did not believe in him? All those years of growing up, and not one of them believed in him. Not one. But here's Mary and Martha and Lazarus, and they believe in him. And I think perhaps that's one of the reasons why he felt so comfortable and so welcomed and so wanted in that home. And every chance he could get, he would go to that house and he could completely relax, knowing he was among the very dearest of friends. And so quite naturally, Lazarus is dying and they sent a messenger to Jesus to come. He whom you love is sick. Won't you come and heal him? How could he refuse? Only Jesus could have refused such an offer because he had a bigger plan for them, hadn't he? And so he waits two more days. Then he goes. But when he gets there, again, everybody is weeping and wailing Mary and Martha both said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. If you had been here, if you had came and we asked, you could have healed my brother. And so they were shocked, saddened, little angry, confused. And Jesus said, did I not tell you that I'm the resurrection? the life. Do you not fully understand that yet? And he said, where is he? They went to the tomb. And Martha said, Lord, he's been dead four days. By this time, he stinketh. Decomposition had begun to set in. 
Now you have to understand that this particular miracle, raising Lazarus from the dead, if anything could convince any Jew that he was the Messiah, this would have been the one. See, the rabbis believed that when somebody died, that their spirit hovered around for three days in the off chance that maybe God would have reunited them again. But after three days, when decomposition began to set in, it was too late. The spirit left. That's what they believed. And Jesus deliberately, consciously waited until those three days was over and he came on the fourth day whenever it would have been impossible to raise this man whose body was decomposing would have been the greatest miracle to show forth his Messiahship. By this time he stinketh, roll away the stone. Lazarus, come forth. And he came out of that grave. That would have been something, wouldn't it? You know, the more you read about these things, it would have been something to be there, wouldn't it? I mean, this was just the greatest miracle. This is not just a little girl who's just died. This is not a young man who's dead a few hours. This is a man who's been dead four days. The messenger took a day to get to Jesus. Jesus spent two days. And then Jesus took a day to get back to the, to the gravesite. Four days had passed. Impossible. Beyond any understanding. No possible chance of, of any, <laughs> he just swooned or he fainted. No. They could smell death in the atmosphere when he opened that tomb. But when Jesus spoke those words, Lazarus, come forth. He came out of that tomb. But the Bible says he had his grave clothes on. And there he was, shuffling. You could almost stand there. You could have heard a pin drop. And you could have heard the shuffle as he came out of the gloom and darkness of that tomb. <laughs> and then all pandemonium must have broke loose at that point. <laughs> there must have been some cheers went up at that point. It must have been wild. What did Jesus say? Loose him and let him go. Take off those grave clothes. Those clothes of his old life. Take them off. And let him go. He can't walk with these on. And isn't it sad when we see so many believers who have been spiritually raised from the dead, who have spiritually come out of the tomb, but they're still bound with some grave clothes of the old life. And they're shuffling along. And they're not making any headway in their spiritual lives because there's something of that old life that continually holds them back and they need to loose it. They need to get rid of that to be able to walk in faith. But at the moment, they're walking by sight, not by faith. And they need to get rid of those old grave clothes. We are called up to walk with God and walk before God. All habits still bind them. All attitudes still overtake them. And they need to strip that off and go free and walk by faith and not by sight.
It is for freedom, the Bible says, that Christ has made us free. How are you walking today? Are you walking, stepping out by faith? Are you shuffling along in unbelief? Because we're not supposed to be. We're supposed to be walking consistently, faithfully, forcefully in Christ as we go through life. Raised up by God to walk. I don't have time to spend much in each one of those, but the reason why I'm giving you four is to see where you fit into these. Here's the final one. In Acts chapter 9, it tells the story of, of Dorcas. Acts chapter 9, verse 36. At Joppa, there was a certain disciple named Tabitha. This was a Hellenistic Jewess, or Jewish name. The Aramaic was Tabitha. Her Greek name was Dorcas. That's why you get both here. Certain disciple named Tabitha, which is translated Dorcas. This woman was full of good works and charitable deeds, which she did. But it happened in those days that she became sick and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. And since Lydda was near Joppa, and the disciples heard that Peter was there, they sent two men to him, imploring him not to delay in coming to them. Then Peter rose and went with them. And when he had come, they brought him to the upper room. And all the widows stood by him weeping, showing the tunics and the garments which Dorcas had made while she was with them. So here is a, a lovely believer, a disciple of the Lord, a widow. A widow that had a talent. She had creative hands. And that allowed her, as best she could, to self-support, to sustain herself. Because again, being a widow in those days was tough. But at least she had this talent and she used it. And not only that, they talked about her charitable deeds. So that would imply that particularly with the widows in that era, area that she looked after the widows. She would often perhaps make them, when she heard somebody became a widow, knowing how that must feed, she would maybe make them a, a dress or a tunic or maybe their children, make them a little frock or a little pair of trousers or whatever it was they, they wore. And she would do that free of charge as best she could. So no wonder the widows were heartbroken that, that this precious lady, this good woman had died. And they heard that Peter was close by, so they sent for Peter, and Peter comes, and they're weeping and wailing. So what does he do? He did what Jesus did in the house of Jairus. He told them all to leave. Politely, I'm sure. But he ushered them all out. Verse 40, But Peter put them all out, and he knelt down, and he prayed. Hmm. I wonder what he prayed. doesn't say, but I, I would take an educated guess, and I would say that a good part of that prayer would be, Father, is it your will for this lady to be raised from the dead? 
You know, out of all the hundreds of miracles of Jesus that's recorded, or that, that he did, that it's only recorded the three times he raised the dead. So it wasn't an everyday event. It wasn't for everybody. And Peter had that in mind. So I'm sure part of that prayer was, Father, is it your will that this woman be raised from the dead? And also, this is the first apostle ever to raise the dead. <coughs> Think about that for a moment. He had seen great miracles. He had seen the man at the beautiful gate, leaping and walking. I mean, this man had seen tremendous miracles, but never before had been asked to raise the dead. So this is a big thing. He needs to get this right. Is this the Father's will? And so he prays. But Peter put them all out, knelt down and prayed, and turning to the body, he said, and notice here he spoke in Aramaic, just the way Jesus did at the house of Jairus. That must have been in his mind. And he said almost the same thing. Tabitha, arise. Jesus said, Talitha, kumai, little girl, I say unto you, arise. Jesus says, Tabitha, that was her name, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. Then he gave her his hand and lifted her up. And when he had called the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa. Many believed on the Lord. So it was that he stayed many days in Joppa with Simon a Tanner. Tabitha, arise. This woman had a servant's heart. This woman had one talent, and unlike the man in the other parable that hid his talent in the earth, this woman didn't hide her talent. This woman used her talent to the best of her ability to touch many, many lives. And the proof of the pudding was when she died, everyone that she had ministered to came to honor her. She wasn't an officer in the church. She had no high-ranking position. She was just a widow woman, but she was a seamstress. And she used that. There's a Dorcas downstairs doing the Sunday school this morning. Lois. Lois is a seamstress. Some of you might know, but Lois does all kinds of mending on the sewing machine and earns a little. And oftentimes that's how she does her mission trips. <laughs> you may be only a one-talent person, but you can have great influence over many people if you use that one talent. Don't bury it like the man in the parable. Use it for the glory of God. We are raised up by God to serve. Don't tell me you can't do anything. Don't tell me that. I don't believe it. There's something you can do for the kingdom of God. There's some talent or ability you've got that you can use to bless 
the kingdom and bless the world around you. Philippians 2, 7, speaking of Jesus, but he made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant. Matthew 20, 28, even the Son of Man, he said, came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give him a life, his life as a ransom for many. And Luke 22, 24, now there was also a dispute among them as to which should be considered the greatest. He said to them, the kings of the earth exercised lordship over them. And those who exercise authority over them are called benefactors, but not so among you. On the contrary, he who is greatest among you, let him be as the younger, and he who governs as he who serves. For who is greater, he who sits at the table or he who serves? Is it not he who sits at the table? Yet I am among you as one who serves. Remember that incident where they were arguing about such a thing? And he took off the apron from the back of the door and he put it on. He got a basin of water and he bent down to wash the disciples' feet to show that he came as a servant. If the Son of God came as a servant, where does that leave us? To serve. We're servants. We're all servants. And God has given you an ability and a tongue. All service is spiritual in motive, and it should be, but it's not all spiritual in content. If you had looked into that little woman's room with the sun coming through her window and that little table full of bobbins and threads and needles and woven cloth and wool and all the rest of it and the little maybe a spinning wheel beside her, didn't look very spiritual, did it? Somebody said, well, she, she just sews things. But she did more than just sew things, didn't she? She touched the hearts of all those widows with her kindness and her servant's heart to be a blessing. And what you, you, just, you just say, well, I can just work with my hands. Well, work with your hands. That's a talent. It's a gift from God. Use it to bless somebody. It doesn't have to be standing on a platform. It could be behind the scenes. But you can use that to serve God, to serve the kingdom and to bless the world around you. Raised up to God by God to fellowship, to testify, to walk, and to serve. And I'm sure many more things beside that we can't go into today. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that we have been raised up. That we have been spiritually resurrected from the dead. Lord, we were dead in our sins. But Lord, you made us alive in Christ. And we thank you for this new life in Jesus. Lord, help us to appreciate it. To thank you for it. And to walk in it. And to do all that we can do to honor you and glorify you through our lives. Yes, Lord, we feel and there's times in our humanity, Lord, we, we fall short. But we thank you, Lord, that you forgive and that you dust us down and raise us up. 
we can walk in this life. So we bless you and we give you thanks for all that you've done for us and all that you've done through us. Lord, it's all by your grace and mercy. And we're grateful people today in Jesus' name. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this message. For more messages like this one, visit us online at www.mpc.org.uk. You will also find a selection of informative videos at youtube.com forward slash Moira Pentecostal.